welcome to 2D Pokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthaud, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. Robbie, it's been a long time since we've talked. It's before Christmas, in fact. Happy New Year, man. <laughs> happy, happy New Year. Happy transition from sober January, if anybody did it out there, into February. And yeah, it's it's been a while. So hope everybody enjoyed the holiday season while we were gone. I think I was sober for four consecutive days at some point during January, uh, but not not two weeks or a month or or I know a lot of people were trying, but I I, I just couldn't do it this year. <laughs> uh, why don't you give us a cheers and we'll get it kicked off? Yeah. So how about just a cheers? And this we might have done the same one on the last podcast, but to all our patient listeners out there that had to deal with us off the uh, off the radio waves for a good period of time. Lots of things happened, did some kid things, and then you, uh, it sounds like, are in the process of buying a house, so yeah. life is surely catching up to us quickly, and the the times that we have time to come on here uh, become fleeting in the off-season, so we'll apologize for that and just give a cheers to everybody that managed to put up with our with our absence, and we'll we'll try and keep it on a more steady schedule moving here to the to the season. Cheers. Yeah, me and my wife are currently awaiting closing on a house. Uh, we are under contract and moving to the suburbs. So I've been living on Broad Street in Philadelphia now for for about three or four years, and it's been great, but I am definitely ready to be out of the city, have a garage and plenty of parking for when friends kind of come over and things like that. So we're excited, but yeah, the fantasy camp of living downtown and going to bars on the weekends and stuff is kind of coming to an end. I was, uh, I was with a bunch of friends over the, this past weekend. We went to deep Creek. We went up to wisp. Uh, it was four or five families, tons of kids everywhere. And uh, after, I think it was after the super bowl, a few of the, me and the guys were staying up late and maybe it was before. I can't remember. We were all drinking and Ferris Bueller's, uh, day off came on. I haven't seen that movie in forever. And he said, you know, life, if you don't pay attention, you know, life will get by you quick or, or one of those lines and forgot how, how good that, that quote is and it's, how relevant it's, it, it is to life. It so true. It really does. Because I actually, I, today I was you know, going through my t-shirts and stuff and I, and I had a Beamer ball t-shirt that, I, and I sleep in it a fair amount. And on the back, it says nine seventeen twenty eleven 2011, Arkansas state versus Virginia tech. It's like one of the whiteout games it says Beamer ball on the front. And I was like, oh, I remember this game was the day I painted my condo, which was the last place I owned in Arlington. And I was like, oh, my God, that was like nine years ago. <laughs> like oh That's nine goodness. years from the Penn State game <laughs> was when I last painted a place that I owned. And I was like, what have I been doing for nine years? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it's pretty incredible how fast it uh, how fast it moves. But yeah. Um, yeah, if you if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I believe the uh, the accurate quote as I look. There it you up. go. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the national championship happened while we were away. We had LSU beating Oklahoma and pretty much just destroying Oklahoma, and Clemson beating Ohio State in a very tight game in which they had a comeback the championship game started out really competitive kind of back and forth and then lsu who just seemed destined to win it all ended up opening it up and joe burrow 
finished off what was just a fantastic season, maybe the best season ever for a quarterback and maybe the best season ever for a team. Not necessarily the best team ever, but maybe the best season ever for the LSU Tigers. What did you think of the game? I thought it started out. I I thought Clemson was going to surprise people, and then I should have just realized that LSU is they're just not scared. I mean, that offense is not frightened by anybody. Very much the same way that Clemson was even last year. You could almost equate it to where you could go up by them on you know by fourteen, and they're like, yeah, we're just going to you know run with it, and. That's what LSU did. They just came back and storming back, even when you thought it was pretty close, I think, even into the beginning of the third quarter. Yeah. And then after that, you know, Burrow showed why he, in my opinion, had the greatest quarterback season of all time. From start to finish, completion percentage, yards, touchdowns, basically every stat across the board. the completion percentage at whatever he ended up at 75% or thereabouts yeah. is just absurd. That's just so hard to do. And a lot of those are deep passes. They're not short out routes. They're not slant passes. It was incredible. Yeah. And that receiving Corey has is no joke that the kid who kept beating Terrell on the outside, is it Jefferson or something? Number one, the yeah. Blitnikoff award winner that that guy is just unbelievable, man. Yeah. they, and, you know, they talked in the preseason about how they felt really good about their team. I don't think the media did enough, a good enough job scouting them because a lot of those media members, at least the high profile ones, get in, they get to go inside, watch practices, talk to the coaches. They get, in, they get to do embeds. Godfrey talks about embeds that he does um, a lot of times. I'm just surprised people, people still had them ranked seventh but nobody had them as good as they were. And even the wide receiving talent was just so good. I feel like people just didn't really see that before the season came on. Burrow, going from what he did last year to this year, is just unheard of, the the year-over-year yeah. change. I think they said the odds to win the Heisman for him were like 60-1 to 1 or something before the season started. So that just goes to show you how out of nowhere – uh, it, it really was for him to just have this inexplicably good season. And and since then, they've lost their defensive coordinator, they've lost their offensive coordinator and Joe Brady, and they've lost a lot of guys on the field too. So LSU, I don't think, is going to be reloaded and back in the playoff next year. That's probably going to be Bama or one of the many other SEC teams, Texas A&M, who's going to make a good run at it next year. But what what a season it was for Coach O, Joe Burrow, and that team. And I don't think they care. If you give me <laughs> no. a... <laughs> I think they're still partying right now, actually. Yeah, if you give me a season like that, I don't care if we're bad for the next five years. I'll just yeah. live in that season, so. Speaking of living in a fantastic season, the Vic documentary came out recently, and it's actually a two-part 30 for 30, last Thursday, and then what will be tomorrow or the day that you get this podcast, which is Thursday, for part two. And in part one last week, there was a lot of Virginia Tech talk a lot of clips of him playing that talk about the national championship game and it was pretty awesome I know Robbie hasn't seen part one yet so I'm not going to go into too much detail but after watching it as I'm sure a lot of listeners did you're just like man I want to be back (laughs) I want to be back there so bad with just you know a top-notch defense and maybe just that player like Vic who could just put you over the top 
And if he is a generational talent, which a lot of people have always called Vic that, one in the million, you know, you don't see guys like that very often. Lamar Jackson, I think, is the closest we've had to Michael Vick in college football since then. You know, Vince Young and Cam Newton, very good. But that speed and the change of direction, I think Lamar was that guy. But if it's generational talent for Tech, I mean, it's been 20 years. How long is a generation? I mean, we're getting <laughs> good. Could uh, Demarius Davis be the next generational talent? I think that's what we're all hoping. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's what I'm hoping for. And uh, we'll get to that in a little bit uh, with uh, with talking about Texas and, and recruiting. But you, you know what? I, I haven't seen it yet. I'm very excited to. I, I binge watch, so I'm almost waiting for it to come out tomorrow and then second part so I can just go all the way through it. But you know what else is generational? The change, did they clean up or were able to like edit any of the film from those games? Because the difference between those games in 1999 and then like 2004 must have been the switch from eight, like standard definition to HD because every clip that you watch online or on TV yeah. is so grainy. I know we have a different eye now with 4K and HD, yeah. but... In that small window of between 1999 and 2004, 2005, like everything changed. You can watch clips yeah. from like 2005 on YouTube. They look fine. You go back to like, you know, a 1999 game and it looks like it was from the 1960s. So uh, it is I, crazy, the difference. And I think part of it isn't only the standard definition to high definition transition, but the size on which we watch TVs. You know, I, I had a 27-inch TV in my living room growing up, and I'm sure a lot of other people did too. And the games on that size looked fine. <laughs> and yeah. you don't know any different. And I think it does the transition from whatever tape it was on to getting to YouTube. Like, there are some t videos out there that have lost a lot of quality <laughs> in those transitions <laughs> being transferred from you know analog to digital or whatever. But yeah. there's a lot of reasons for it. But I completely agree with you. Like, it looks like Michael Vick played 40 years ago in some of those <laughs> clips. <laughs> yep. But I'm excited for it. All right. So we have a bunch of topics to get through. Basketball, the Fuente de Baylor thing we're going to touch on briefly, finishing out the coaching staff with those hires, the early departures to the portal and the draft, signing day, and then the schedule and Belk Bowl. Yes, that's a lot of things. Robbie and I are going to try to attack them as quickly as we can and try to get Basically done in a little over an hour, but we'll see. Let's start with the basketball team. We talked to you before the new year, and so since then we've lost to UVA, and then we had that nice win up in the Carrier Dome against Syracuse, a place that we had never won before, I don't believe. So everyone right. was real excited after that. We beat NC State the next weekend, I believe. Then we won at Wake, and now we're thinking, like, we're going to the tournament. You know, we've started ACC play really well and we're feeling good about ourselves. And then we lose to Syracuse at home by two in a game where we really could have won that, that hurt. And then we followed it up with beating UNC in double overtime. Were you able to watch that game? I didn't get to watch that game. I, I got to watch it on the Twitter sphere, but, uh, I, I didn't actually, I got to, I got to watch the, uh, excitement over that. That said, the excitement has kind of since <laughs> yeah. dwindled and seeing what UNC's putting it out has. on the court. <laughs> that UNC game was a weird, weird game. They had lost, I think it was five in a row coming in, in the ACC. And 
they were definitely trying to not make it six. They had never lost six straight games in ACC play. And they hadn't been playing well. And I really thought we were going to lose the game because we were starting. That was when our play really started to deteriorate. It was like that Syracuse into the UNC game. But somehow, some way, we came through. I think Radford hit a shot at the end. And we were able to beat them. And it was fantastic. And I think that masked a little bit of how poorly we were starting to play. And it showed up at BC. We had the players, I guess, late to something. Nolly didn't start. I think another one or two players didn't start. We lose at BC, not a very good team. Then we lose at Miami by 10 in a game in which we were down by more than 20 and came back and actually thought we might win. But Beatty yeah. had too many turnovers. We ended up losing by 10. Then we play number five FSU and you know, kind of play the best we've played in a while. And their one guy hit seven of seven threes, I believe. And we lose by 11 when it was all said and done. Yeah. And then we really go into the tank against GT last night. And we yeah, lose that, by that 19 was the part. at Georgia Tech, which, again, not a very good team. The ACC is so down this year. And we're losing to these teams that aren't very good. Now, on the road, and a conference loss on the road in and of itself is never a bad thing. But you go to BC, to Miami, and to GT, and you can't win any of those games, and two of them really weren't competitive. That's yep. that's not good. Yeah. Everything about this team, it's all about order of operations and how things transpire. Because if you reverse the ACC play and flip it on its head, all of a sudden we're probably looking at the team going, man... This team's starting to come together. Mike Young's really starting to to really get the team to coalesce. The fact is, is that it's it's a long season, and they've they've regressed. But I think it's down to probably the level that was expected of them going into the season. And there's been bright spots with Radford and and areas. And Nolly started very very hot. He's had cold spots here and there. Um, you know, BD. I think. If you, it's hard when you take these streaks because if you move them around and shift them around, you can change the perception of the program completely. And if you go win loss, win loss, win loss, win loss, instead of you know a streak of four, five wins here, you start to change the narrative around the program. But I think when you take it in totality, we're probably at the, over the course of the season about where. We probably would have expected going in. Probably maybe, still maybe ahead. A little, maybe ahead. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. we still have a winning, winning record. Well, right, we're five and seven and in the ACC. But yes, yeah. overall we still have a winning record. And uh-huh. I don't think anyone was really expecting us to have a five hundred record or even win seven games in the ACC. And right now we're five and seven, tied for ninth place. And I think if you had said. At the beginning of February, you'll be in ninth place in the ACC. You'd be like, yeah, sounds about right. Maybe maybe a little bit better than I thought. Unfortunately, it's because of the way it's all gone down that it sours us a little bit. The whole team is hitting the freshman wall, even the players that aren't freshmen. And the shooting has gone way down since non-conference play. We're shooting 31% from three in the conference play, and – Nolly, like you said, he has gone cold. He's shooting 27% from three right now in ACC play. 3.6 turnovers for, per game for him as well in conference. So I'm hoping 
that they adjust. If you remember, Buzz Williams teams usually went through a tough streak end of January into February, and then they picked it up around the mid-February mark and played really well down the stretch. I'm hoping that same thing happens with Mike Young. Uh, we don't we don't know yet because this is his first year with us. But Horn, Beatty, Wilkins, Couture, they're all shooting under 25% from three in ACC play. Beatty really, he can't shoot at all. And he is a good defender and he's good at getting assists and generally protects the basketball. He doesn't turn it over very much. But against Miami, there was a lot of silly turnovers. We saw some more in the next game. Uh, I just, I want the team to come together. And Radford has still been great, and I love his energy. And really, I think he's led us in scoring the last three games ahead of Nolly. And he's become a leader, and we need other guys to step up. Maybe Wilkins or Horn. We need some of the veterans, (laughs) which Wilkins is a sophomore, but (laughs) he's a veteran on this team. (laughs) Well, that's what I was about to say is, I mean, you're seeing young guys be be young. They can't, it's the same reason when we've had seen more senior teams that they're able to kind of scratch and claw even during tough games and, and even keep it close. I don't think we're seeing anything. This is a year zero for Mike Young. And if anybody said anything different going into this season, then I think they had false expectations for what was going to happen. Because I didn't see anybody you know, hemming and hawing when we were picked 14th in the ACC. Everybody was like, yep, that's probably about right. And now everybody's kind of reset expectations. I think for me, this season is just about coalescing, guys getting experience, getting more comfortable, learning how to lose, and then learning from there how not to lose. Like you got to take those big shots from like a Miami where you go down by 20 and then you bring it back to 10 and then you you have a shot. And then the next year, now you're not down by 20. You're down by maybe eight. And you learn how to come back and win by, you know, three or four. It's stepping stones. But I, I think sometimes we get away from that. In football, it's just a known. You have a zero, year zero. Like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's a year zero. And that's what my expectation was going into the season. And I think most people were that. I don't know if it's changed since then. There is good news. And... That is, we have five home games left and only three road games. And the next three games are all at home and winnable. We got BC, Pitt, and Miami all coming in the castle. And I think there's a week in between the second two. We hit, There's a big gap in between one of them. So there will be time pre- to prepare for these games. And those are not the best teams in the ACC. The ACC is so down this year. Right now, there's only three teams that are locked in to get into the tournament. UVA is projected as an 11 seed, which means at any moment, if they take on a couple more losses, they're not in. This could potentially be a three-bid conference. That's how bad it's been this year. And they, I think the TSL guys said this, but if we had had last year's Virginia Tech team in this ACC, they might have won the conference. They, oh, they really might I think they definitely would have. <laughs> it's, it's wild how bad the conference is this year. So there is, there is wins still sitting out there. I The tournament... At this point, seems like a pipe dream, but maybe you beat UVA. Maybe you win your next three at home, and all of a sudden, you got a chance at it. Well, we will see. But Radford, I'd, I'd just like to – about him, he is so fun to watch just because of the energy he plays with. He's also makes just about every basket he shoots, it feels like. He doesn't take any threes, 
but he's shooting 66% on the year, essentially. He's 13th nationally. There's 350 basketball teams. He's 13th in shooting percentage of all the players. (laughs) And all 12 guys in front of him are forwards or centers. So it's it's pretty unbelievable that a six foot one guy is thirteenth in the country in shooting percentage and and I love him and I'm hoping he keeps leading the team in scoring and leads by example and gets us a few more wins. Yeah, I agree. I I, I kind of have expectations that you know for us it's the NIT or kind of nothing this year. If uh, but who knows? Maybe they turn it around. I just think sometimes. And we saw it when, even with Buzz, I know we have two different types of coaches, but we saw a lot of this before with Buzz, before that team came around and was what we kind of remember it to be during last season. So, you know uh, who the, who the Radford was on those first Buzz Williams teams? <laughs> Zach Lede. Yeah. That was the Radford, yeah. like the undersized for his position or for his style of play and just willing the team and I that I didn't think of that till just now, but you're right. Like there is some of that early Buzz Williams teams in this team, and uh, I'm hoping they can can do what the Buzz Williams team did, and that was get better. Yeah. So let's do the Fuente uh, to Baylor thing before we take a beer break, just to get it out of the way. We know that this is kind of in the past, but we need to bring it up because we didn't ever talk about it on a podcast. But on January 14th. Pete Thamel put out a tweet saying that Fuente was the leading candidate at Baylor. And this kind of sent Virginia Tech Twitter (laughs) into a frenzy. Some people elated that we might get rid of him. Other people disappointed that we're going to lose our coach and screw up what could be a great 2020 season. The next day, uh, there was no, no news. No one said anything. And the fan base continued to freak out. And because there was no news and no commentary, <laughs> there was no control of the narrative. And um, people were starting to get mad at Fuente. Even his supporters, I think, there was a little bit of a reaction that, you know what, if this guy wants to leave us, then screw him. You know, that that kind of thing. Uh, what were your thoughts in those days leading up before we got the news that he was going to stay? I just wanted... I, I don't know why, I, and I don't I don't know enough about the inner workings of these types of things. I just want somebody from the administration or together just say, you know, something. Just like, yeah, you know, he's going to have a discussion with Baylor. Who knows? It's right down the street here in Blacksburg. He's not traveling there. He's not going to Waco to go have a conversation, and he's going to find out, you know, it's back where he would want to be, and... I think it just would have alleviated a lot of it and it sent people spiraling in all sorts of directions. I generally just tried to stay silent on the whole matter. I think that probably would have contained things, but you know, the the professionals are the ones that, you know, do this and wits a professional. And I think we've seen him go about it. Um, and it was, it was a weird time frame for the program. Just as you said, one from some people, just the bipolar nature of like everybody going to different sides of fine, let him go to, you know, we need him back. We have a lot to play for. Yeah. And then just as you said, everybody kind of even aligning at the middle, which was 
if you don't want Blacksburg, we don't want you. And that started to overtake kind of everything. It kind of did for, for a little while there. And it was hard to keep track of. And staying silent as a tweeter was probably a wise decision. I tried and failed a few times and then I would delete a tweet and I, I delete tweets all the time. That's kind of how I roll. But overall, I was in a position where like either either outcome was going to be okay. Um, and what happened the next day was we got a photo tweeted out by Fuente saying, 2020, let's go. Picture of all the coaches in the very small meeting room, um, seemingly working on stuff. And it, there was no explanation. That's That was the tweet that came out in the morning. And it was just, I guess he's staying. And that was a little bit of a weird way to go about it. I think maybe a video saying like, hey, Hokie Nation, I, I love it here in Blacksburg. I'm sticking around, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Probably it, just about anything would have been better than that. But he tells us or he's staying. Not doing it at all, or not doing anything and then just letting it roll because later that afternoon was the actual, that afternoon was the wit press, press, press conference. Yes. So that rubbed people. That's when people really got angry. That's when the national media picked it up as something like really weird. Like I was watching the sports, I was watching ESPN. It came up. I, I was listening to podcasts. Later on, it came up, and everybody just said the same thing. That is the weirdest way to go about it. They should have just not done anything and then just let... If Wit was going to come out, I also think the press conference might have been better suited for Fuente, but whatever. That's probably... That morning, maybe Fuente should have called a brief press conference and just answered a few questions. And openly and honestly, because what it comes down to is he interviewed for a job for what we believe to be more money closer to where he's from. And you or I probably would have taken that interview too in his shoes. Almost anybody would. So that's not why it upset me. It's not why I think it upset. I don't think it upset a lot of people for that reason. The reason that it bothered me is that it got out and regardless of intentions or whether it's right or wrong, it hurts the view of the stability of our program. Because now you've got a coach who other coaches recruiting against us, they can say, that coach has one foot out the door. He interviewed for Baylor just last year. You can't tell me that's not true. So that's that's the reason I was upset by the situation. I do not fault Fuente for taking the interview. Not one bit. I, I fault whoever leaked it, basically. Because it hurts our program. So that's why it upset me is because I just, I think it hurts our program. It's not a huge, huge deal. This will be water under the bridge, hopefully at some point down the road. But right now, locker room wise, recruiting wise, it's something I'd prefer not to be out there or have happened. But like I said, I don't, I don't blame Puente for it. I kind of just blame the situation. Yeah. And I could not agree more. I don't blame him whatsoever. You take the interview, go have at it. My bigger concern about the program, right? Forget the whole situation between the fans and wit. Nobody owes anybody anything. Get it. Go interview. Go do your thing. That's totally cool and understandable. Is just thinking forward on the program. As long as he's cool with the players, 
And as long as he's cool with the other coaches that he brought in, including some of them two days earlier, as long as everything is copacetic between those three groups, then I don't care. It's been water yeah, under the bridge. Uh, absolutely. And, not, and none of that will show up until we see what happens during the first game of next year. And we may see some of it in the offseason. So I'm just kind of going to sit back and be cool with it and just see what plays out. And and a lot of people were reverting to the winning solves everything. Don't worry about it. You know, that that kind of thing. And, and that can be true. Absolutely. But there's nine months between when that was going on and the first game and the Penn State game. And there's a lot of recruiting and other conversations and all kinds of stuff that happens in college football in those nine months that you cannot win. So I just think it's on top of everything that's gone on the last two years, SI article standing out mostly, we're trying to resurrect this idea at Virginia Tech that everything is all good. Everyone's on the same page. The players love the coaches. The coaches love the players. And we're going to win and move forward. And Fuente's here for the long haul and blah, blah, blah. That that took a hit. I mean, that that whole thought process took a hit. So that's a bummer. Um, I do think that if we win the first two games of the season, including the Penn State game, this is definitely going to be long forgotten. Uh, but there's a long way to go. And that might not happen. So... It's just another question, another red flag in Fuente's tenure. But I'm I'm happy he's here because the 2020 season does look promising, and we're going to get to that when we go over the schedule. And it would have been very awkward to try to figure out what was going on with these coaching hires that were just made. I think the Ryan Smith hire for the CB coach had happened like the, the same day or the day before yeah. or something like that. It was It was crazy. So... Yeah, I'm happy he's here. I'm happy like we don't have to go through a whole coaching search and hire this late in the cycle because I do think that would have been tough for Virginia Tech. Whether or not it was better in the long run, I can't answer that. But right now, I think it's better in the short term to have Fuente here. And these coaching hires that we've made this offseason, I think, will be beneficial. And let's talk about them. Because that first one that happened right after we recorded was the defensive end coach, Bill Tierlink. And that was, in my opinion, the most home run hire we've had on this staff in years. I think to me, and I may have sent this you this message to you after it happened, was that was a big time football move, right? That was a big program move. It it may not end up being the most perfect hire. He may stay with us for two years and then leave. He may, you know, we've had some offensive line coaches that were really good that came in and exited a year later, three years in a row. But an eight-year NFL, you know, assistant that comes into Virginia Tech, in my mind, is just a really good signal and a really nice marketing message that we don't hit them all in the head, but VT Football, I think, put out a message and it was like, you want to play in the NFL? come get taught by somebody that coached in the NFL. And it just added to a little bit of bravado that I think we needed at a really, really critical time for, for the program in terms of what we were trying to do and the coaches that we were trying to bring on staff. So for me, I hope it ends up being an absolute home run, but even beyond that, I just think it was a really smart big time move. And one that a lot of people discredited when it had been rumored for a while, 
it had been rumored for almost a month and a half that it was going to happen. And sometimes as Hokie fans, we get so down on ourselves. We're like, oh, we can never, that's never going to happen. Oh, we're going to get an NFL guy to come to Blacksburg and, and coach for us. And it did happen. So a huge kudos to just the team, the coaches in general. And I thought it was a big move. Yeah, I was definitely asking myself the question of why would he go from an NFL coaching position to coach at an ACC college position? You asked me You asked me that question. I think you actually said, why would you do that? And I said, because it gets stale in the NFL. It, it, that's the biggest thing. And I think you're like, because it's a soulless place <laughs> or think, something like that. I think that's that. what I said. I said the NFL is soulless and has no culture to it whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. And, and there probably is something to that. Maybe he wants to be a college head coach one day and needs to get back into the college ranks. I heard that he wants to, he likes working with young players and developing them. Maybe he really likes the outdoors. <laughs> I know the pay isn't that much different, you know, uh, from an NFL D line coach to a college D line coach. In fact, sometimes colleges pay more. So maybe if the money's even and the location is better than Buffalo, uh, that he, he wanted to move to tech, but whatever, whatever the reason we got him, he's been with the Bills since 2017. They've had some very good defenses, including our boy Tremaine on the team. Uh, they were 12th in sacks in 2019 and of the 32 NFL teams, he likes to rotate his defensive linemen. So we'll probably see some of these freshmen maybe that are coming in at defensive end get in because of that. Uh, but it's pretty cool. And tap is going to be I guess his assistant on the D line, they named tap the co-defensive line coach. So at first we weren't sure if tap was going to have a defensive line specific title, but he does. So yeah, because originally it came out as just a defensive coach. I think it was labeled and then he got the co-defensive line coach and uh, tap. And I was alluding to earlier and uh, tier like they're the two that have been on the recruiting trail. They've been putting out the pictures of the two of them. They've been really going at it. It's been it's been fun. I forget the nickname that they came up for the two of them. Yeah, like, but it was, I think it's TNT. Like TNT. Yeah. yeah. But they're, <laughs> but that's what you love to see. Like go out yeah, there. A little, little bit of a gimmick is always kind of good. Right. Yeah. Um, whatever, whatever gets the kids to commit. I don't know, but, but, uh, but yeah, pretty cool there. And then the CB coach we mentioned, Ryan Smith from JMU. He was the safeties coach for JMU only for one year. He's, I think he's about 28 years old. He's under 30. Uh, his safeties last year for JMU accounted for 11 of their 17 interceptions. The D was number one in the country in FCS and uh, third in scoring D. Before JMU, he was a grad assistant at Penn State, actually, under James Franklin. So yep. maybe a little bit of inside information for that game next year. You never know. Yep. And then he, he moved on to Elon before he was at JMU for a couple of years. So a young guy. I think we needed a little bit more youth on the staff. And I don't know. The CBs are very good. He's got a lot of talent to work with. Hopefully there's nobody on this podcast that doesn't know or at least is not naive enough to not know what JMU has done over the last <laughs> six, seven, eight years in terms of a football program. But between them and one other school, uh, they've basically manhandled, um, you know, the FCS programs. Like other than been... NDSU, yes, yeah, they, and they did but, win one championship. True, yeah, and but that it's usually them in, in either the championship years. or you know the semis uh, each and every year. So as much as people want to look at uh, 
at them as baby brother down the road. They have a lot of really good coaches and they have developed a really good program uh, down the street. So I thought that was a, a good move. Yeah. They've brought in multiple different head coaches and they keep going back to the playoffs and the championship. Yep. Let's take a quick beer break before we move on to the portal and signing day. Robbie, what are you drinking? So I went to Norm's down the street and I got an Avery Brewing Company beer. It's a barrel aged vanilla bean stout. I went double stout uh, this time around. It's a bourbon barrel aged stout with obviously whole vanilla beans, 10 and a half percent. It's, it's a little bit uh, intense. Uh, it's been a while. It's, they call it rich, velvety, and cozy. I don't know how cozy really kind of fits with me, but I will go with velvety as a good description for the beer. Um, Rocky Mountain Water, malty barley, the good stuff, vanilla beans. I like it. It's it's pretty good. Avery always puts out pretty decent beers, in my opinion. And this is a traditional bourbon barrel-aged stout with a, a little bit lighter flavor due to the, the vanilla beans. So I love it. Right, right up my alley. Nice. I am drinking the Hazy Bones IPA by Flying Fish Brewery. Flying Fish is from New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. They have, they used to have a very nice tap room in Philly. I'm not sure if it's still open, but this Hazy Bones, I think, is one of their newer products. It's kind of got a Day of the Dead skull on the front of the can, and it's a very good beer. I just tried it for the first time the other night. And then I ended up buying a six pack of it. It is a little hazy. It's still pretty clear, uh, but not like a New England or anything where it's just completely cloudy, golden color, 6.3% alcohol. And I would recommend this. I I don't know. Do you get flying fish down there? Can you get that in your stores? It may be down here, so we might get corrected for this one, but I have never seen it. Okay. Because I I always mix it up with flying dog. And so I kind of think it's everywhere but I might be messing that up. But Flying Fish Brewing, they they make some pretty good beers. Uh, and like I said, they have a very strong local presence here in Philadelphia. But the Hazy Bones, it's pretty good. Okay, we have a few more topics to get through. Let's see if we can knock these out in 30 minutes, Robbie. The early departures I did want to talk about because we're losing a couple of key guys. Dalton Keene declared for the draft. And I think that was a big surprise to most people. He seemed like an all-in-on-the-program kind of guy, uh, and not necessarily a guy with really high draft stock. Like, I, Am I wrong, or is that kind of how you perceived it too? That's how I perceived it at first, my initial reaction. One, I, I hated to lose him because he's a fan favorite. We all know that. he's he's um, He's been great the entire time he's there watching Keen Gaines and what he's been able to do uh, and the change him over time. It's been fun to watch. He seemed like an all-in type of person like you did, and that's not to say that he still isn't, so I'm not taking it that way. And then I agreed with you. I didn't know where he was going to fit into the draft, but that position can be so strange in the NFL. From the projects. Yeah, and I was watching... And I don't trust anybody because I don't know NFL well enough, but I did see a clip of somebody going through all of Keen's blocking. And he was an NFL scout that was, he's a legit NFL scout, whether or not he's a good one or a bad one, I don't know. And he 
he spliced, I think it was like 20, 25 clips of Keen talking about how he finishes on every block. Like this kid's name is pancakes. Like that's what you need to call him from, from now on. So I don't know. The NFL is so weird. If you go back, did anybody think, you know, both Edmonds brothers, we knew one of them was going to be, they would both be first rounders. I don't know. Maybe he got, maybe he got some good signals from what is it? The draft board has to give them a rating and it was good, but it was weird. It was a little bit, strange the timing and how it played out it was unexpected i i thought that even the most insiders to the program didn't see that coming and so it sucks that that's the thing is on the field for us it sucks because he's a very good player i hope he goes as high as he can possibly go i mean like you said that position and the nfl draft in general it's it's hard to say where a guy will go what do they value do they value blocking do they value catches it depends on the team all that kind of stuff so We'll see. He was a very good recruit. In fact, if you look just at the top 247 every year of the top 247 guys, according to 247 Sports, the best the best recruiting service we have, that means you're essentially going to get drafted. That's how they do their ratings. Like If you're a five-star, you're one of 32 to their in-house rankings because they believe you to be a first-round pick. So if you're a top 247, there's roughly 250 draft picks in the NFL. That means you'll be drafted. And Keen was in there. So coming out of high school, he, according to 247, would have been a draft pick. A late one, but he would have been one, like in, you know, fourth, fifth round. That could be exactly where he lands. And so that's, that's I after some more looking into it, and like you said, going online, seeing scout tape, that kind of stuff, he'll probably be drafted. Uh, and he has more intel than we do into that kind of stuff. The next guy that decided to leave for the draft was McLeese. And that was something, again, uh, I think we thought he would transfer. I don't think we thought McLeese was going to go to the draft. And one, I guess that's because of the position he plays and because of his size. Yeah, that one was a big surprise. And it was sad for me to, over the past two seasons, if you listen to the podcast, I started even the year before saying McLeese is really starting to improve. He showed it this year on the field. He showed it in the bowl game. You know, it just every game, I just became more excited at seeing his progress and what he was doing, his ability to see full, you know, to go for that extra yards, to see the hole. And then to your point, I think he already had finished his second degree, if I'm not mistaken. Is that it? it, it Something so, like that. He, he was he, done with school. He was gone. Us. But I thought he would have done a transfer or something along those lines. I just hope it, it works out well for him. That's all I really care about for him. I, just because I like him so much as a player. I don't... That position has been so... Um, I don't know the word. Just not important at the NFL at this stage. Everybody was joking. I think I saw a stat the other day about like the last however many running backs to to win a Super Bowl were like not even recruited. Like, they made, or not, the draft yeah, was made like a something. million dollars a year on average or something. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. yeah. They, I mean, Mostert from Purdue was the lead running back for the 49ers. And I guess Damian Williams, he was an Alabama guy. But yeah. I don't think he went first or second round. Yeah. Maybe that bodes well for him that it just depends on – your ability to learn, scheme, 
get into the right program. And sometimes that's by accident. Trades or just finding your way onto a roster, putting on the right size. So it was just, it was a weird kind of situation. I thought, I thought he would have transferred, but you know, again, I'm happy for him. That's uh, honestly, I, I hope he does, does great. And I hope he gets drafted and finds a spot onto a, to a roster somewhere. Yeah. Damian Williams was from Oklahoma and uh, he was an undrafted free agent <laughs> and he was nearly Super Bowl MVP. So yes, for McLeese, I don't think he's going to get drafted. I hope that he does. And I hope that he has a great career in the NFL. Uh, fortunately, we took a bunch of running backs in this recruiting class. We're going to talk about in one second. And we got a couple of transfers who are running backs. <laughs> so we're going to be fine at that position. Uh, that's not as big of a loss, in my opinion, for the team on the field as Keen was. But it, it's still it, it's kind of a, a weird situation that he would have eligibility left and want to leave. But I think it was kind of understood that was going to happen long before the season was over. As for the portal, there was a weird day again on VT Twitter where five guys or something went into the portal in a very short period of time. And most of them were wide receivers. We had Hazleton, Grimsley, Patterson, Pinckney, and then safety slash whip Khalil Ladler all enter the portal in a very short period of time. And that threw people for a loop. And when you really break it down, the only really big loss is Hazleton from an on-the-field perspective because he has been so good for us. When fully healthy and when playing, he has been a beast. Like He really is a very good player. Drops notwithstanding, it sucks to lose his on-the-field production. And he's already transferred to Missouri. I think he's there. <laughs> no, he's, he's there definitely – I think he's already there. And – it wasn't so much. I know there was questions about him and his blocking and, and some questions about maybe some effort on some plays, things like that. But there were a lot of games where he was good for two tough touchdowns in the end zone. You can't discredit that having that safety valve for a guy that, that is that talented, that can be really important. And that's on a short field. That can be tough to get you know a touchdown in, in those situations. So that was disappointing. I do think with the transfers and the the portal there's one key piece and i think a couple people brought this up and one of the podcasts brought this up but i i never knew this but everybody there's a time period where you can go into the portal and then keep your scholarship for that semester so the biggest day for everybody to go into the portal was the day that we saw everybody go in because there's this yeah. time period where you get to keep your scholarship for that semester, finish out the year that way, at least for that year you're covered. And it's this weird window that I never knew about. And I can't remember who, which podcast talked about it, but yeah, it's I, basically after the semester starts, like yes. you, if you go in the portal after the semester kicks off in some shape or form, you can stay on Scully and transfer. And so that's what a lot of guys do. And that's, you're right. That's why it happened in the same day for, I think it was Grimsley, Patterson, Pickney, and Ladler were all the same day. Hazleton might have, was before because he wanted to enroll in Missouri. But, that's right. Uh, the wide receiver and tight end depth, what this means is that they, that took a hit. And I don't think we're too worse for the wear, but. Hazleton and Keene, those are sizable losses. Uh, I'm hoping 
between Turner, Robinson, Smith, and then some of the guys who haven't played, like Simmons, uh, Payout, and Bowick, that we can fill some of that need. And maybe if Raheem Blackshear, who we're going to talk about, one of the transfers, maybe he helps fill that need as a pass catcher as well. That's the, the crappy part, is that we have James Mitchell at tight end, and we have Turner and Robinson at wide receiver, but the depth... Um, you know, it's not there. And I know Grimsley didn't have a great year, and I know Patterson hasn't been able to get on the field, but losing multiple senior wide receivers isn't necessarily good when you think the whole team's going to, like, have the most depth in players it's had in a while. Like, you want all hands on deck. So in the short term, I, I do think missing Grimsley kind of sucks because he, he is a talented wide receiver, and – you know, if if Robinson were to get hurt or something, you'd have a slot guy who could step right in. And now we don't have it. And so that's why it's unfortunate. But ultimately, we're still going to have a very good team coming back. No, I, I agree with that. I, I just, you've seen so many times that you get thin at positions and Virginia Tech in particular has found itself thin at positions that are, are critical. And I don't think we would be as honed in on it if not for from the very start, Fuente has already had articulated so many times how important it is to him having seven, eight guys that he can put out there at any one time. That was his narrative right from when he got hired of what he was going to do. And it felt like we were, we were there. Like we finally hit that threshold. We were getting close. Yeah. And we may not have had all eight, but we were getting pretty darn close. So to have, you know, one to two and potentially three people that could have been out there on the field. It's, it's not a, it's not a good thing. And I know people were talking about, you know, some of these guys might've rode the bench. Fact is, is you don't know the development year over year and hopefully the coaches knew better or the players knew better that they could get starting time somewhere else, but they might not have been able to get it at Virginia tech. I just don't see it as like a, a positive you know what I mean? You, it, you, it doesn't... It's leave. because of last year, too. Because a lot of guys went into the portal last year, and that was the first year, and some guys came out. Hooker and McLeese came out. And it just kind of... With our starting quarterback and Josh Jackson leaving, and then our starting running back jumping in, and then the backup quarterback and Henry Hooker jumping in, it we started to particularly, as Virginia Tech fans, feel that portal pull. <laughs> And so any time now that anyone goes in the portal, we kind of lose our, our minds. But they're not all bad, and they're not all equal. And, yeah, even Ladler, like having depth in, in the defensive backfield would be nice. Like I'd rather him be on the team. But we're going to be okay. Uh, it's just Hazleton and Keene, their losses on the field. And that's that's fine. We can recover. I think at tight end, we're going to see Gallo play a lot next year. We also have Drake Delius, who... Funny enough, if you look at that 2017 recruiting class, Devin Hunter, top recruit, everyone knows that, top 50 guy in the country. Delius was number two in that class, according to 247. And he hasn't ever really played or developed, I guess. But maybe next year with Mitchell and Gallo, maybe Delius works into that thing as well because he has talent. I mean, his high school tape was great. I remember watching it. We talked about it on this podcast years ago, and I was like, I like this Delius kid. He's going to be good, and maybe it clicks this year. We'll see. But we're 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 going to need as many pass catchers to step up as can step up. So, and I think we'll you see. brought up an important point, and I always 
I like to compliment you when you bring up something I hadn't really thought about, but it's that it's not so much. I ran the stats on the first year of the portal. I put them out on the key play. I ran all the numbers. We were top five in the number of people that ended up like hitting the portal in total in the country. Um, and it got run again this year. I think you did a bunch of analysis on it. It's, it's not so much what we're, I think Virginia tech in general, it doesn't necessarily, everybody wants to put it into this means disaster or don't worry about it. It opened up slot for other guys, or we made more room on the team and all those things. The fact is, is as a program, we got hit harder than most other programs did early on. And maybe that's not, and I don't say hit harder in terms of like, maybe the talent wasn't as great that left. And that actually may have been, it's just the sheer volume sends a, you know, a spike, right? Like it, that causes shock in anywhere that it's going. Like you mm. see fluctuations in a stock market. You're like, all of a sudden you start kind of freaking out. We had a pretty big shock factor of this introduction into the portal to your point, which has more focus than transfers used to. It has more, uh, more statistics around it now, more visibility around it. And our numbers happen to be really big at a time that the team, the program in general was already going through transition. So yep. it's going to cause stress. It's going to cause bipolar narratives across the fan base in terms of what it means or what it doesn't mean. And that seems normal to me to have a reaction to that. And I just hope over time it starts to settle down because the stats right. of the number of people that are going into the portal and then not getting anywhere else mm-hmm. and losing eligibility for football and things like that are staggering. So I just hope that it all kind of settles into a normal narrative uh, for, for all programs, not just for all, all I can hope going forward is that our numbers into the portal go down because the hallmarks of good programs are consistency and development, like continuity from class to class, making your guys better. Teams that go after tons of JUCOs and tons of transfers, they don't do well historically in college football for long periods of time. They just don't. So that's not what I want to become. I want to develop, recruit. Like, what are they? What is it? Uh, recruit something, deploy. Uh, Bill Connolly has a saying, but whatever. Um, and that's that's what you want to do from square one, from high school all the way through the fin- – you want them to finish their eligibility at your school, preferably with a redshirt, continuity, development, deploy. You know, like that's what you want to have. And I hope that we'll get there. Right now it's a little bit of just one of those red flags that I, I, keep, I keep in my notebook on Fuente is that we've had a lot of transfers. Not all the transfers are created equal. Some are walk-ons. Some is this. Some is that. But you look at the numbers – it's a lot more than the other ACC teams the last two years. One thing that comforted me was that the TSL guys did an analysis of guys not on the roster from basically January or December to the following fall. And back in 98, 99, 2000, it was 11, 14, 13, 11, whatever. It's it's a fair amount of guys. And so I it actually was like, okay, this has always been kind of happening, but there was no portal to see the names online that you could go find. Yeah, no, I, that's that's a great point. I hadn't seen that, and I think you're right. It, Kansas State, they made a living off of JUCOs for a long period of time. 
but they were not consistent. It would be one year really good and then a couple down years, one year really good. When you and it's a changing it's it's all this shift within the program that's happening. It's it's us coming out of still to this day, coming out of the Beamer area era and seeing brothers play from programs, their brothers playing for programs, the brothers after them, everybody that consistency, just the lack of consistency in and of itself is enough to spook the fan base into Mm -hmm. just this nervousness that it's like times are changing. It's like we're coming out of the sixties and, and, you know, into the seventies coming out of the seventies, going into the eighties and, you know, millennials are, are, are the problem child kind of thing. Like everybody is afraid of the change and it's going to take us time to adapt, but it's fine to be uncomfortable. We'll figure out what actually it means over time. For what it's worth. I do think we are on the cusp of reaching a steady state. I, I, I do believe that. I know I've had my moments with Fuente. You have too. Uh, probably anyone that listens to this podcast has. But I do think that we're on the cusp of reaching a steady state with in terms of recruiting and development. And it started with this coaching hires and the change over there and cleaning the slate from the SI article and guys trying to lose a game so they don't go to a bowl or whatever the hell that was all about. I am hopeful. So we'll see. And I expect, I would expect the transfers to lessen. But keep in mind, even in 1998 into 99, I think it was over 10 guys, you know, that left or whatever. And that was our best season ever. So it's going to be okay. We're going to have still have a good season next year perhaps a great season, despite these portal entries. And I'm going to get into those numbers and why a little bit later, but we do need to talk about the signing. Do you have any last comments on that? Or no, I think the, the more information we have is both a blessing and a curse. It allows yes. us to analyze it and see it, but it is absolutely a curse in that when it's not right in front of you and you're not seeing it, you're not getting told about it, then it just kind of develops on its own in it stinks for the coaches, the administration, especially the players, the way it transpires now, because it's all under a microscope and it's blown up way so much larger than it probably would have been otherwise. But that's where we are. and We just got to get used to it. So with regard to signing day, which is really the fake signing day, because signing day happened before Christmas and Robbie and I actually detailed it pretty well. So if you want a full scope on the class and everything that went down and why it's as low as it is, I would recommend listening to our last podcast because we kind of went into that in more detail than we're going to go into tonight. Since that initial signing day, we've gotten one more commit and one more transfer. And the commit just happened yesterday and it was wide receiver Dallin Wright. He committed to the Hokies, six foot one, 180 pounds, He's a three-star from South Carolina, but he's an 86 rating according to the in-house rankings on 247, and he's a hell of an athlete. He's a triple jumper. He's a basketball player, and in football, he kind of bloomed late, I guess. he His senior year was really, really fantastic, but a lot of the recruiting gets done in your junior year, and so we kind of got in on this guy late, and I think some of the bigger dog programs came in on him late as well. And we were able to to pull him. And it's great because 
as we just talked about, we had a lot of wide receivers walking out the door. And I don't know if he'll factor in as a true freshman, but it's another body to add to the list. And we need wide receivers right now. So I was very happy to see Dallin Wright committed. And before I let you comment, I'll just mention that Raheem Blackshear was the transfer. And he was kind of a running back wide receiver at Rutgers. 912 rush yards, 810 receiving yards. So a pretty even split. And I love that. A versatile player like that is someone we can absolutely use, maybe a backup slot guy. Um, What were your thoughts on those two guys? I think there was, there's a decent amount of film on him coming out of Rutgers, given what he played. Everything that I saw was really impressive. I I think he could be a factor immediately um, and, and see the field. I also like seeing Wright come in just from a sheer volume standpoint. I think at the wide receiver position, going into the seasons, I've tried to walk it back. I think going back to the Ford days, the Phillips days, every year, I always feel like we have an idea of who those top one or two might be. And it usually ends up being kind of a crapshoot for who's going to be three or four or factor in a little bit at five at the wide receiver position. So the depth there for me, I think is probably more, even more important just knowing that somebody's coming in that has, he's not a huge guy, but you know, he's big enough to hold his own. He's coming out of an area. He started to get more heavily recruited right towards the end. And it showed the, the coaches made a move and made it happen once we started to lose some a little bit of depth. I won't say a lot of depth. We started to lose a little bit of depth as at a position that's obviously really important to us. So for me, it was a, a little bit of a you know sigh of relief, breath of fresh air, whatever you want to call it, to see him come in. But I think both were late moves that that hit us at positions. I think that are going to be critical to to next year and the success. Because we brought in Khalil Herbert, the guy from Kansas, to play running back, and we brought in, I think it was Moore at running back as well, who was a very highly rated JUCO prospect on 247, uh, I would I would expect that Blackshear plays more of a pass-catching role. However, Fuente said today he will meet with the running backs. So who knows? He actually needs a waiver to be eligible to play this year. That's something else that Fuente said today. And based on our history, uh, I'm not sure I can count on that because we we all remember the Brock Hoffman situation and and Burmeister didn't get his waiver and it, it just doesn't usually go well for Tech in these things. So we'll see. But I hope that they rule him eligible immediately and he can play because I think he can contribute. Uh, all, among the other recruits, we added, it was 15 recruits, the two transfers. And in those recruits i wanted to look at just who was the most highly rated on 247 because i respect their rankings more than the composite or anything their in-house rankings and the defensive end alec bryan he was our four-star guy he is an 88 on there rudolph also an 88 who is a wide receiver slash safety i'm not sure how that's going to play out i think they're saying he's going to project to a safety but we'll see lee was the running back 87 wooten 87 Beatles, Saunders, and Wright. Saunders and Wright are wide receivers, all 86. So whether it's a defensive end 
a wide receiver or a running back, we, we've brought ourselves some options, and those are all key positions of need. We're bringing back everybody on our offensive and defensive line. We're bringing back just about every linebacker. We're bringing back almost every DB. And so these positions that I just listed are the ones that we need. So I'm I'm excited about the guys we got. Of course, 70th in the country in the composite for the team rankings in the class, not good. 66, according to 247, were in the basement in the composite in the ACC, last place, 14 out of 14. It sucks. And Robbie and I detailed this, like I said, in the last podcast. So we are not happy with the state of the class. It is smaller. 15 guys is a small class. But no class for Virginia Tech should be below 40 or 50, really. Like we just, it should not. And we missed on guys we wanted. And that's why we saw these coaching changes. Yeah, it's it's tough to... It's always this fine line that we walk because there are people here that are going to make a big impact on the program that I'm really excited about. But overall, you 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 want to see the overall ranking be higher. Statistically, it's been proven out a million different ways. But I think they they brought in players at the right positions that we need and brought some depth at play at places that we need them for this season and next season. And Fuente has come out and talked about the 2021 as being the most critical he sees for, for Virginia Tech. He was very open about that. And I'll, I'll only end it on one other note because I think it's just only fair to take the positives with the negatives. Bill Connolly came out, I think it was today or yesterday, put out his tweet that the biggest drop-off in recruiting talent, stars, whatever you want to call his analysis, number one in the entire country was Virginia Tech. It was like a 27% drop-off in the statistics. The next highest was USC, and it was 22% drop-off in terms of like their recruiting over their historical average. Like That's a little weird. Like it's a little yeah. strange. There's a lot of programs going through it's a another, lot of it's different... another thing, another one of those red flags. I'm talking well, about. Yes. It, it's just it's just something that's true, right? It, yeah. I think we all kind of knew it was going to be, but when you saw the numbers and you kind of looked at his ranking of, yeah. I think it was the top 15 teams of their drop off and recruiting over their statistical. I don't know what he uses, like a five year average historically. It was a little bit kind of startling, and you know, I think that's. Fuente faced that, I think, today during his, I think it was today or during his press conference and said, you know, our 2021 class is going to be imperative for us because it's going to be a bigger class. He, There's he going to be a lot. Yeah. To work out the averages and to keep the impact of having such a low class to a minimum that he needs to kill it in 2021. And I appreciate the fact that he realizes that. Um, it, you're right. We've been dealing with how bad this class is and knowing how bad it, it is and it's going to be and small and blah, blah, blah for so long that you kind of lose it. You kind of lose how bad it is until you see a stat like that from Bill Connolly or until you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we're 70th, 70th in the country. Okay. Okay. It's small. Oh, got it. 70th though. Got it. Okay. So <laughs> that's, yeah. it's, I hate, I don't want to keep reminding the fan base of it, it's it's done. It literally today it is done, and we will pray that Demarius Davis 
and whoever else that we can get in 2021 brings us back into the top 25, back into the top 20, and we can treat this as a one-off, like, I don't know what the hell happened, new coaches were needed, and now we're moving on. And that that's that's what I'm hoping for. I'm just hoping all 15 of them just literally prove us absolutely wrong and crush yeah. every other five-star out better. there. Nobody's hoping for bad. It's just over time, you, st- you have to average out your statistics to a certain level, whether it's financing, booster support, recruiting rankings. You go, you know, coaching, longevity, you go through all of these different things, you have to average out to a certain level if you want your team to average out to a certain level. And, you know, we are going to have to find our way to get back to to the average. And that's not going to be top 10 classes, but we have a certain threshold that I think we have to sit around if we want to be the program that we want to be. And I hope, like I said, every one of these players proves us wrong and crushes it. Let's talk about the 2020 schedule. This was a highly anticipated schedule, mainly because of the Penn State game, but also because we get Miami at home, we get UVA at home. Overall, there's seven home games, five away. There's an out-of-conference road game at Middle Tennessee State, which is kind of a funny, uh, you know, going to a smaller school is not something we normally do, but Murfreesboro is pretty close to Nashville, so maybe you squeeze in a little trip to the music city and then head over to the game. Um, but then the big game with Penn state second week of the season, we've mentioned a few times already Liberty's first, then Penn state and then MTSU. And I think it's Northern Alabama. And then we start ACC play. So you look at the schedule and I, did anything stand out to you other than I mentioned the out of conference games, but anything on like the ACC slate that stood out to you? Yeah, I think, um, well, the first thing that jumps out to, I think, most people who look at this is the Virginia game. Uh, obviously, that's going to be uh, at home, but it's on a Saturday. It's not Black Friday. It typically is Black Friday. I still don't know if I can make it because it falls right after Thanksgiving, but it's easier for people to make it to that game, which I think is positive, especially, and we had talked, I think, towards the end of the season uh that both ADs were going to kind of come together and go back to the ACC and say, hey, we want this taken off of Friday. And it looks like they were successful, at least for for this year. That jumped out to me. I think the gap in some of the games, and uh, they're not bye weeks, as we've come to learn um, time and time again, but you really have the North Carolina game is on the 10th. You have a little bit of time for that BC game. So I'm not sure it's going to matter. Thursday nighter. Yeah, it's a Thursday nighter. So that actually, you know, we could have a short week there, um, but we don't, which is which is kind of nice. And Louisville, I think, is is going to be a little bit problematic this year. I think they people are starting to really hop on that train and think that they're going to really do something. They obviously have the new coach that turned things around remarkably after the disaster that was there before. That little stretch in between is pretty interesting to me because if we can get past, if you kind of take off the Penn State game, I think they're already preseason ranked top eight. And I'm hoping that we, you know, win that game. But if you take that off the slate and then hope that we can hold serve against Georgia Tech, you hit this interesting slate right in the middle of ACC play that's really going to dictate for me 
barring a disaster in one of the other games early in the season, how things are going to play out for the full year. Yeah, there's a chance you head into that October game against UNC four and one. You know, and that's if you lose to Penn State. If you beat Penn State, you're five and zero, and so that's going to be a huge game. It's in Chapel Hill. You have that Thursday nighter against BC, and you so you get the extra two days of preparation before Louisville the following game. So the but that Louisville on the road on Halloween that that is going to be wild. I don't know what time of day that's going to be, but that's going to be wild. And then at Pitt the very next week, that's a tough two-game away game stretch. And I know the travel isn't like going to Florida, but to Louisville, back to Blacksburg, to Pitt, like that that's a lot of back and forth. So we'll, we'll see. That's a very tough stretch. And at UNC, I mean, that's arguably the best candidate to win the Coastal outside of us. And we have to go on the road down there. Now, Fuente... 4-0 against UNC, right? Yeah, I think uh, so. I believe, I believe that's right. So he's he's good at beating them, but this year it was by two points in six overtimes. So um, Sam Howell's really good. That game scares me a lot. Yeah. We get Miami and Lane on November 14th, yeah. and then uh, Duke before we play UVA. So I, what were you going to say there? Was no, there just that yeah, if, and not to spoil it for everybody, but – we listen to a lot of Athlon sports commentators. So, and Athlon is always the first magazine to come out. They've pretty much already alluded to the fact that it's either going to be Virginia Tech or UNC for the Coastal. So, sorry to spoil it for you in case you wanted to see the magazine, but that's what we're here for because we're nerds and that's the kind of stuff we listen for. But so, that's a huge game that they either they will be number one to win the Coastal, or probably Virginia Tech, after they take into account some of the transfer portal moves. But right now, in the early, like too early stuff, we're first in the Coastal. That's how the Athlon has us. And they have us at 20th in their preseason poll as of January. And I think UNC is like 23rd. So it's going to be, it's going to be close there to see off season stuff is really going to dictate which way they go on, on who ends up being, Number one in preseason, preseason doesn't mean anything, but just we all are going to get it, start getting excited about the season. That's how you should probably be thinking about it. Athlon had us one spot behind UVA last year going into the season. They had UVA at 25. They had Virginia Tech at 26th. And how close did that come to be basically exactly how it was? And so Athlon is very accurate, and that's not just based on that one situation they are the most accurate magazine for the past 10 years more accurate than phil Steele, and phil Steele does that and proves that every year he he gives you the statistics and athlon has been better the last 10 years so i feel good that they picked us first that makes me feel good if you go to pff top 25 they put us at number 15 going into next year so it, it it's lofty expectations and that was probably before the Keen and the Hazelton's news came out. So like Robbie said, off-season moves, transfers, will all be taken into account and they'll change things up. Uh, as for the schedule, uh, one final note on that U- Louisville and then Pitt back-to-back. FSU plays both of those teams the week right before they play us. So FSU goes to Louisville the week before we play them. And keep in mind, we have those extra two days and Louisville does not. And then Pitt goes all the way to Tallahassee before coming home to play us. 
So that's at least a little favorable. And I'm sure there's some other buys before games that I'm not seeing from our opponents and stuff. Um, but overall, it's it's a good home schedule for entertainment purposes. You get at least three great home games, I would expect, in Penn State, Miami, and, and UVA, especially since Miami added Dear King. Like, they're going to be a lot more exciting than they were last year. Uh, I just know that we have seven home games, even if I take Penn State as a loss uh, and say we should win five of those and then two, one, two, two others easily on the the road. Yeah, it's just hard to set the floor lower for the amount of a returning talent that we have. Like less than, like eight or less would be like rough sledding, I think, for this yeah. program. It's, you know, you you should have those six games, hopefully, at home in the bag. And then if you drop, and that's, that, I'm saying that, that's saying we lose to Penn State. So I'm saying there's seven, take it down to six, and then lose one, you're at five wins. You got to win three on the road of the other five games. And I think we're more talented than a, at least a few of those. Yeah, and, I said the other day that nine and three was my initial reaction to the to the schedule. And keep in mind, this is right after the Fuente de Baylor stuff and right after all the portal stuff. My arm could be twisted at ten and two, and and very well may be by the time the summer comes around. But my initial reaction, and right now, that that stretch with Louisville, Miami getting to Eric King, UVA is not going to be an easy game. Penn State being top ten, I'm going to say nine and three right now. And this is what me and you do. We revise as the off season goes on. We learn more, but it feels like a nine and three looking at it right now. And and that's what I'll say. One or two good things going into next year. Eighteen of twenty two starters are back despite the losses. That's still an extremely high amount, and I hope we don't lose any more. But there are thirty four fourth year players on our team. That means redshirt junior or older on the team. Thirty four. Last year we had 20, and the year before that we had 19. So this is a very significant increase. And no, all those guys don't play. But leadership, locker room, having age on the team is always good. And the more you have, the better you typically do. Better practices. You have more. Even Sometimes you're not going ones versus ones. You're going ones versus twos, twos versus threes in practice. It it, it, it can often be tough from the... Yeah, some of the elite teams are from the top down. Some really good teams are from the bottom up, right? The competition that you're playing against. And uh, I think it's extremely important. I think it changes the practices from a day-to-day, changes the mindset, changes the culture of how you walk into games. You've had people that maybe they haven't suited up all the time and, and gone out and played or started or even seen game time, but they've been there. They're comforting. They're there with their players on the sideline. I think it's... I think it's very important. All right, Robbie, are you ready for a five-minute Belk Bowl recap that everyone's been looking forward to? <laughs> I think we can keep this at three and a half seconds. <laughs> All right, we have to talk about the Belk Bowl because we never recapped it. Virginia Tech lost 37-30. to That score doesn't really tell the whole story of the game because it was a very good game, and it started days before the game with pregame trash talk. And I put something out on Twitter, like, are we really talking shit before the Belk Bowl? Like, 
this doesn't bode well. And then I got totally, I mean, totally ratioed worse than I ever have been before about like, I guess everyone out there loves talking shit. I don't know. I, I, there <laughs> one, someone like quote tweeted it and said, you can't ask for dogs and then get mad when they bark. And I'm like, that that's great for like a no fear t-shirt. But like <laughs> the oldest trope in sports is don't give the, the team bulletin board material. And not only did we call out Lynn Bowden uh, in our own locker room, they put it out on social media and he knew all about it. And there was all this stuff that went on before the game that wasn't good. And then you had l- literally the pregame where – Bowden and the and VT are getting in a scuffle and he punches one of our players, but it was outside the time that he can be kicked out of the game. So he got to play. The whole thing was a mess. And for a young team like ours, I thought it was stupid to talk shit publicly. And guess what? Lynn Bowden willed them to victory. So I was right. And that it didn't bode well. That was, that was stupid from the beginning. What didn't help is that we didn't have Farley and we didn't have Waller. And I know it was kind of a more of an option team, but they still passed here and there and having those guys would have been a help. What was your just initial thoughts on all the pregame festivities with that, with that game? I've said this before. I don't know if I said it in the pregame to it, but I said, let's not, maybe it wasn't this game. I can't just don't make it emotional. Like you can still be, it was the UVA game. You had mentioned that. Yeah. It's, and we we did it the, like on steroids in this game. Like we did <laughs> yeah. it to the point where say whatever you want about Bowden. He was chirping at fans on in the stands. He was shirtless before the game when he threw the punch <laughs> 66 minutes before the game and can only be suspended with a, when it's within one hour of the game. It, it, it was Whit Babcock. They showed a clip of him getting into it with whoever the Bolm chairman is and, you know, the AD for Kentucky and rightfully so. Actually, I kind of like to see Wit was fired up. That was actually kind of fun to see. It just, for our team, when you have a extremely, like, older, when you have an older team, it's more experienced, that can be the one to get in your heads, then fine. Right, they can be the and perhaps can, a quarterback who's an absolute baller and who has neck tattoos. Yeah. Yes, trash talk before the game all you want because that guy is gonna he's yeah. gonna mess you up. Yeah, it just didn't it didn't bode well for what we were trying to do out there. We controlled a lot of the game. I honestly thought we were gonna win, and then it ended in probably the most painful what had become started to become over the last however many years, kind of a quintessential fashion where they have a a full field ahead of them and they just drive the field and ended up taking the game. So in terms of the, the antics beforehand, I don't really care that much. It just, it did nothing to help us. It didn't help us like whatsoever. It it did not help us. And you might say it didn't hurt us either. And, and you could be right. But based on what I saw on the field and the way Lynn Bowden responded to being kind of dinged up in that game, being exhausted, and then willing that team 18 plays on the final drive for the touchdown, I'd say it might have had an effect, but but whatever. 
just with regard to the play on the field, in some ways we got screwed. The Armani Chapman PI call that was an interception, but then they took away because of the call. That sucked. We were helped out by the refs early in the game. In fact, Hooker was kind of off early in the game, and without penalties, we would have never moved the ball down the field. But that hurt. And then without the review at the end of the game, it was fourth down, I think fourth and one. Kentucky ran the ball. They fumbled the ball. It seemed pretty clear upon replay. No review. And then they scored the go-ahead touchdown. So that sucked. And we can't control that. And that sucked ass. What we can control is being on the field for (laughs) the 16, 14 plays before that where we couldn't stop them, including on a fourth and seven. And that was extremely painful. What we also can control is being up by three at uh, 27-24 and then kicking another field goal. And I'm I'm not going to hammer Fuente too, too much for kicking a field goal to go up six with 12 minutes left. Or I think it might have been close to 13. Yeah. Because there's so much time, you might get another field goal and be up nine. But it's still such a chicken shit move. It was fourth and three. You're up by three in a bowl game. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Go for the fucking touchdown. Yeah. Like, what did you think about that? It bothered me. I, I wouldn't say I <laughs> threw anything, but I might have thrown something. Um, it, it just didn't didn't make any sense in the the way the game was playing out. You almost knew what was going to happen at the end just by that play in oh, and of itself. Absolutely. As soon as absolutely. it happened, you know, I think my wife might have said something, and I was like, "Oh, I can kind of already see how." And I know we always like to think that we can think ahead of how things are going to go bad for us. But you, you kind of already saw the tea leaves of how it was going to play out because we already saw it against Notre Dame. Yeah. The exact same thing. And it's, it's fine. It's, um, you know, I'll jump right to my takeaway for it. and kind of the pregame, the game, sure. The takeaway for it for me is I, I hope that it was just a learning experience for young guys to understand you keep your emotions in check. You, you know, talk some smack, blah, blah, blah. Everybody does it during, yeah. during the game. Talk yeah. as much smack as you want. Yeah. Not before, not before. Like, and especially, and it, so luckily it's a bowl game. It doesn't mean anything. It, it literally does not mean anything other than I feel bad for the players. Right. Then I feel bad for the fans that went to the game and anybody out there that was that concerned about the, the Belk bowl and us winning. I just hope it was a good learning experience for a lot of young guys of how to keep your wits about you and how giving the other team motivation can backfire because he ran all over us. I mean, there was a 25-yard run for a touchdown, a 60-yard one for a touchdown. He passed for, I think, the winning touchdown, was, and he doesn't even mm-hmm. pass, he can't yep. even pass the ball. Like He admitted himself in the post-game conference. He's like, I can't even pass the ball, so... No, I decided to just pass to win the win the game. So, thirty four carries, two hundred and thirty three yards for him. Just don't give people that kind of motivation because, as good as he is, and I think he's an exceptional talent. I think he showed a lot of immature, stupid character in that game, and he showed it again and again. Whatever, we made him better than I think. He even could have been in that game. Like on yep. that last drive, 18 plays, 
we had the talent on the field, even though we were missing some guys, to shut that down. And we had multiple plays where we could have. And we helped them a little bit. We gave them the extra gas that they needed at the end to, to win the game. So I think it just, I hope it just helps the team kind of understand. Sometimes you just, you know, it's fine to trash talk, but don't give people motivation to try and beat you. What What's the point of that? You're not helping yourself. Like, what, what are you helping? Like, if you're not we, in their head, we were never in their head at all. No, never. We were probably in our own heads, too. Just a, a couple of takeaways. McLeese was great in the game. 143 total yards and a touchdown on a 43-yard scamper. That was pretty beautiful. Hooker, also pretty good in the game once he settled in. 160 total yards, two touchdowns, a 76.3 QBR. He finished the season top 25 in QBR in college football. So he was qualified. He had enough snaps and whatever, and he finished top 25. And that's great to have him coming back. He really, he doesn't always have the high stat totals, but he, he plays a good game. And really that could, that did not fall on him. The loss in this game, the defense needed to get Bowden off the field and we couldn't do it at the end. And Kentucky was Kentucky was an awesome defense, by the way. I mean, they, they they were great defense. They are great. They hadn't given up 30 points all season. And we scored 30. So that that's a nice little feather in the cap for Cornelson and Hooker. Uh, we had 219 yards rushing, 6.6 yards per carry. Like, I, I that's one of the highest we've had in years. So um, it was impressive. Unfortunately, UK had 331 yards rushing. Bowden had 300 in total yards and whatever. Ashby, two and a half tackles for loss and a half sack. So I'll give him a shout out, but... Tough loss, a tough loss. Of course, we had to fumble at the end, too, to like make it a full seven-point margin. Um, whatever. Crappy ball game. I wish it had gone better. It was kind of a fun game until we blew it. But I just wish Fuente would grow some balls sometimes. Like it, when, you're, when you're up by three in a bowl game, maybe you don't kick a field goal on fourth and three. Maybe at the end of the half, when you got 53 seconds and two timeouts, you don't piss it away. Like maybe maybe that, you can tell I've had a little bit more to drink because we're at like the hour and forty minutes <laughs> podcast. I mean, I uh, I agree with what you're saying. I think it will. I think a lot's going to ride on having senior talent on the field this season to see how he does in those situations. And I'm not excusing the times. And we've brought it up in no less than six games. I think that this kind of topic has come up probably and i get it if you have a less seasoned team then you're gonna play a little bit more tight assed uh than you probably would otherwise but i I don't really think that this season holds for that so i'm hopeful that he's more willing to open it up and i'm not saying you have to be like lsu style open it up where it doesn't really matter where you are what down it is what distance it is they knew they could make a touchdown at any moment I'm just saying like a, a marginal in between might be nice. I think we're a little yeah. bit too far on the conservative side. If we could kind of like meet somewhere at the 50 yard line, then we, that, that might be helpful. Yeah. Well, I think that does it. We covered a lot of ground, spoke too long. I'm going to try to cut this up and trim some of the fat when it's all said and done. But Robbie, I appreciate you, you know, preparing for this. I know we, we enjoyed our time off. And now we kind of have to get back in the swing of things. 
Uh, but it was good, and we did cover a lot of stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it, even though we had to kind of double back on some of the information you hoped you wouldn't have to rehash. Um, but we will be back at some point during either February or March talking about the basketball season and, and all the things happening, hopefully leading up to spring football. Uh, do you have any final comments before I give our sign-off here? No, I think that. And then before you know it, we're going to start doing season previews. And that will be that will come far sooner than you believe that we're going to be starting to do those types of things. I was thinking about it today, and I started thinking when you, when we started going through the schedule, I was like, oh, man, we're already going to have to. And we don't have any time off. Normally we have cupcakes or what should be cupcakes early on. Yeah. Early on, we're going to have to start understanding what Penn State's got coming back, and that should be fun. Yeah, it's going to take us back to Ohio State being the first game or Tennessee being the second game, so it'll be, it'll be fun. You can hit us on Twitter. It's at 2DeepVT, 2DeepVT at gmail.com if you want to email us anything. We're also on Instagram at 2DeepVT, and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Write us a review if you want. We got a, actually a pretty nice review um, the other day. I should read it, but I don't have it open right now, but maybe next time. Give us a rating or review if you have the time, and make sure you subscribe. We will be putting podcasts out this off season. Maybe not as often as you'd like, and I do apologize for that. I think, actually, I think that's what the review said. I wish there were more episodes. <laughs> we wish there were more episodes too, but sometimes uh, work and life gets in the way, and we're going to try to record as much as we can this off season. And sadly, we're a little bit self-aware that if we're just drolling on about uh, stuff that doesn't really have any content behind it, it it's not a comedy show. It's not a uh, <laughs> that that's not what we were signed up to be, and. Uh, I can imagine that would get old pretty quickly. If we were putting out weekly podcasts in the off season, I wish I just had the kind of humor to make that uh, entertaining for everybody. But usually the content is, is kind of, is one of the reasons that people like to listen. Yeah. We can't do the Bill Burr and record two or three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. And until next time, go Hokies. <laughs>